Welcome all to the Nexus Aurora podcast. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about space junk, what the situation is in Earth orbit, the extent to which it is growing, what the problem even really is, you know, like, so what if you get hit by a fleck of paint or something like this in orbit? Turns out actually that's a much scarier proposition than at first it appears to be. And then what technologies are being investigated to solve the problem? including a novel solution or two I've been thinking about for a while. That's this week on the Nexus Aurora podcast. So I've been thinking a lot about space junk recently. Do you, do you have any thoughts on this? Like the whole, the, the space junk issue generally? So I don't know that much about it. It's one of those things that comes up a lot. Like if you look on the various Reddit forums and things like that, that are related to space, you'll always see a satellite is about to come into the atmosphere and, and burn up or a satellite has drifted out of its orbit and is going to cause a problem or, or someone will be proposing we can create a uh, starship that can go around and chomp up all the rubbish. So it's something that comes up that I see a lot of, but uh, I don't really know very much about it. Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly quite scary. I mean, um, so the, I, I, we got to get back to that, by the way, the... Um, was it the which James Bond movie was it? Uh, you only live twice with the the uh, the spaceship that sort of opens up and then grabs the gra- grabs the space junk and things like this. Basically, if you've seen the movie Gravity, it's unrealistic. It's not that bad, uh, but potentially space junk and uh, having having a, a large number of orbiting bodies that are relatively uncontrolled and difficult to detect uh, that can be extremely dangerous. The way I like to the way I like to phrase the the problem, why it's a problem, is uh, to think about relative relative kinetic energies and the the way the way interactions between bodies at high speeds actually sort of play out. Uh, so, say you have like I know a uh, a fleck of paint or something like this flying around sort of in uh, in orbit. If I if I told you that you were about to be impacted. By like a you know like a dried piece of paint that's like a you know sort of a, a centimeter wide or something like this like a you know a millimeter thick. If I told you you know in the next ten seconds, uh, a piece of paint is going to sort of fall from from the ceiling and then like uh, impact you like on your head. I you know like, you're not really scared because well, uh, that's that, it's a little bit at, at low speeds. There's no problem with this. The reason why there's no problem with this, generally speaking, is that um, at low speeds. When you get impacted by something, uh, information about the the impact is easily transferred to uh, well, uh, in in the case of the human body, to the rest you know the rest of the the structurally significant components of the human body. But then, in the case of like a you know like a, a, a shield or something like this, or like a say I don't know the armor on a tank or something, uh, the information about an impact rapidly spreads at the speed of sound actually through the through the material. So if you get impacted by something, especially something very lightweight and moving relatively slowly compared to the speed of sound in your shield material or in the, in the structure that you're worried about, the structure is usually able to deal with it just fine. In my case, so if I get hit by a, a tiny piece of paint or something like that, it's very low mass compared to my mass. And the structural integrity of, you know, like um, the, the supporting components of my, my, my body, you know, like my skeleton and so on, is pretty high. So the stress is spread out from a very slow impact from a very light piece of material uh, completely throughout the rest of my body, and there's no problem at all. Or, you know, like you imagine like a little satellite or something like that. At low speeds, 
you can spread out the force of an impact so that it doesn't count for much. The trouble is that orbital speeds are really quite high. They, so impact velocities that you could get for, uh, for little bits of space junk, they can go, in many cases, well beyond the speed of sound in the materials that you've built your satellite from. At this sort of range of uh, velocities of an impact, the, like, all the mechanics sort of completely changes. The, uh, all, all the, thing, the, the instincts that you have for how things behave at low speeds no longer apply. So a fleck of paint in orbit around a planet is actually a very dangerous proposition. Getting in, an impact between that and, say, a satellite or something is a very dangerous proposition indeed. For multiple reasons, the first and most, uh, like, uh, most distinct being that the majority of the structural mass of your satellite isn't able to take part in a collision. So say you have a, a fleck of paint and, well, a little scary if it's <laughs> going to hit you in orbit, right? But say it's going to hit a satellite in orbit. Uh, if, it, if it hits it on the ground and it hits it at slow enough velocities, but even relatively, relatively rapid, you know, like, um, like a... a a baseball sort of speed or cricket balls, but you know, from England, so it's like a cricket ball thing. Uh, if, it, if it hits you at that kind of speed and um, there's no air resistance, right? So in a vacuum at that kind of speed, uh, it's still slow enough that it can bounce off and information about the impact can spread throughout the satellite and the whole thing uh, soaks up the impact relatively easily. You can, you can have the whole thing taking part in spreading out the, the force from it. Well, if you, if you have an impact that takes place at, say, three kilometers per second, which in some instances is, you know, pretty reasonable, uh, it, it, in, in really bad instances, you might get probably as much as maybe even like 14 kilometers per second, which is sort of insanely fast. I could think of some situations in which you could have a collision that fast, like in Earth orbit, between a piece of space junk and you, or like a satellite or something. Well, now... The rest of the, the satellite that's not, you know, directly underneath the, uh, the bit of paint, it can't take part in the collision. And so the paint can, uh, or the, the, the thing that's, that's colliding with you, it doesn't, like, you, 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 the normal rules that apply to, like, say, a medieval suit of armor or something, they can't help you. And so a fleck of paint is really quite dangerous. Obviously, there's also the, uh, the, the set, the the energy side of things because the the kinetic energy of a uh, an object goes as the square of its velocity so you know a, a fleck of paint hitting you at the speed of i don't know say like a baseball or something like that as compared to the speed of that you, that you'd be able to get in a you know a collision in orbit the kinetic energy has gone up by maybe a, a, on the order of a factor of 10,000 so it's gone easily to the point where you're at, so for the typical sort of collision you might get from space junk you know, and a satellite, it's perfectly reasonable to have an energy release from the, the slowing down of the, the space junk when it hits your satellite, an energy release equivalent to the mass of the space junk in sort of TNT, or more, actually. In some instances, a lot more. So the, the worst case scenario, you know, worst case scenario is probably around a little bit over 10 kilometers per second. At those sorts of speeds, uh, you're looking at more like 10 times its mass in, uh, in triage or toluene. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, like a, a, little, a, little, uh, a little bit of, say, I don't know, supporting spar from a satellite or something like that turns into like a 
an artillery shell in terms of it's it's uh, the energy stored in there that gets released when when you have an impact. And whilst you might have, you could imagine, say, uh, armor on a, a battleship or something like that, being able to stand up to like an, an actual artillery shell hitting it. This is what it's designed to do. In the case of like a space-based environment, uh, all the all the energy sort of focused in one point, directly underneath the collision itself. You get really weird things happening. So, for instance, uh, the 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 reason, so to, just to to set a backdrop for this, to show why under some circumstances this stuff could be really scary. Imagine I said that uh, it wasn't a fleck of paint, but a uh, a spider web. Say you got like a spider web hanging, you know, to all the listeners, right? Uh, say you got a spider web hanging above you from, I don't know, I'm assuming you're listening to this inside. Maybe it's better to be outside, right? You know, get some sunshine, kids. Uh, but if you got like a, a you imagine a spider web directly on uh, on top of you, and I say it's going to fall and like uh, hit your head, there's no problem there because it's like a it's like a little thread. So um, uh, it, a, a long and thin object that's at perp- that's moving perpendicular to you at slow speeds just sort of crumples up, and it's uh, it, it's it's laughable. There's no thread at all. It's not threatening in in any way. But if you're in orbit at fast enough speeds, this is probably not really the case until you're going very fast. Uh, at, at fast enough speeds, even something like say you know a um, uh, a bit of thread from uh, from clothing or something like that. If it's aligned perpendicular to you, the 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 penetration depth that you get through armor for a uh, a long thin projectile goes as the square root of the ratio of the density of the projectile compared to the density of the thing that it's hitting at fast enough speeds at very fast speeds, so that <laughs> you can imagine uh, under some circumstances. I, I don't know, and really no one does, because uh, it's very hard to do these kinds of tests on Earth. In space, it's, it's a doable thing, and I expect over the next few decades, uh, people are going to try this stuff out. They'll, we'll get some good data for this. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a little scary. I'm not sure we should, but we're going to get some data for this anyway. In principle, there's nothing, there's nothing oh, if you do this on paper, there's nothing to suggest that a spider web that hits you uh, that's completely straight and hits the surface sort of perpendicular to the surface. Or, or like a, a sewing needle, but that's more obvious. In the case of like a spider, a spider web or like a thread or something, if it hits you exactly on, uh, the, the depth at which it can go through a material would be proportional to the square root of the, <laughs> the ratio of the density of the spider web to the thing it's hitting. So you might be, if, you're, if it's like a meter long and you have, say, I don't know, uh, uh, 30 centimeters of steel armor or something like that, uh, on paper, it is not obvious that it doesn't go straight through the thing said to me as a steel armor. It's not obvious that that doesn't happen at high enough speeds, at very, very high speeds. So uh, the, the, the danger from collisions at very high speeds in vacuum is like, it's a completely different world. Like, uh, did you ever see, did you ever see the movie Dread? You know, the, the Judge Dread movie? It's like a, it came out a couple of years back. Uh, no, not the more recent one. It's, it's good, actually. I recommend watching it. But then they have these scenes where... Um, it's not really a spoiler. It's, it's, it's like an aesthetic thing. Uh, they have scenes where they have like a bullet time uh, type thing where there's like, uh, you know, I don't know, there's, it's a Judge Dredd movie, so it's like a big sci-fi thing. It's like, uh, you know, big gunfights and all this kind of thing. Uh, you, you see the bullets sort of traveling in slow motion and uh, the way they interact with objects and... Uh, okay, this is a little gruesome. Just, Spoiler warning, it's a very graphic movie. It's definitely like 18 rated and so on, but 
uh, but you, you see the, the way that the uh, projectiles interact with, with objects and, um, you know, like the, the people and so on, it, it's, it's radically different from how things behave at lower speeds. It's like a completely different world. Well, in space, it's even more extreme than this. So, you, you know, like in, in shows like The Expanse, you have a little bit of this as well, like with um, things just going straight through spaceships and so on, like projectiles, uh, sort of leaving trails of, uh, uh, of sparks and so on as they, as they go through. Uh, well, from a satellite's perspective, that's no good. <laughs> okay. So you could see how under the wrong circumstances, uh, bits of space junk can be absolutely lethal against satellites or even, you know, like manned spaceships. And they don't have to be big either. Like very small pieces of space junk could be uh, very, very dangerous. So there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of concern for the effects of this kind of thing, like the impact this might have on, uh, on space travel going forwards and you know, what to do about it. So obviously you want to clear out the space junk or at least find a way through it to you know, navigate through. So as a, as a backdrop, uh, potentially... It's very serious, and they do, you know, we have had satellites get impacted and sort of blown up by these kinds of things in the past. But yeah, that, that, uh, the, so it's a, it's a big deal, at least it seems like it's a big deal. It's going to get more of a big deal as more stuff goes up. Uh -huh. So now, the, you know, not to, not to be overly pessimistic, but uh, it, this is something that if it doesn't need to get sorted out now, eventually I think does need to get sorted out in one way or another. Uh, so again, the the movie Gravity is a, uh, a particularly sort of uh, well, from my perspective, depressing place to to look at this kind of thing because you see the potential impact of uh, like well, uh, a a chain reaction of, uh, of of collision events. We have a little bit of space junk hits a larger satellite or something, and the satellite breaks apart from the the force of the collision or the energy release of the collision, as I said. You can get the sort of energy release, of, you know, equivalent to the mass of the impacting body in Triarchitoliwing, or more, depending on the speed involved. So then you get a whole a cloud of space junk produced. Then that hits more stuff, and you get another cloud, and so on and so forth. I, I don't think that's really possible at the uh, the density of satellites that we have at the moment. But the density of satellites we might have in thirty years that could certainly happen. Uh, have I have I scared you off space travel too much? <laughs> so far um i mean there's not actually any spider webs in space so far as we know so that part i'm okay with this does bring up a slightly complicated question which is if everything within an orbit so say in low earth orbit is everything be moving at roughly the same speed right mm -hmm. so how are we actually going to get these impacts because wouldn't everything essentially be moving I mean, I guess that something could be moving laterally across the path of something else. That is a wonderful question. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, I used to think that more or less uh, there's no, no danger because of this, this phenomenon. Uh, the tendency actually is to have something like the situation you describe. So if, you, if you're launching something from Earth, you discover that it costs a lot less to get something to orbit if you tend to launch it in the same direction that the Earth is spinning. So the Earth spins around at uh, something, something like 500 meters per second. So if you launch something from Earth in the same direction the Earth is spinning, you, you know, instead of, uh, say it takes, I don't know, uh, a kind of gravity drag, I, I don't know the, the actual number, but say it's something like 9 kilometers per second delta V, uh, change in velocity, worth of rocket work you need to do to get to orbit. If you go in the right direction, 
it only takes you then eight and a half kilometers per second. And that corresponds to a significant fuel saving, especially going the other way. Because if you go the wrong way around, if you go opposite to the Earth's rotation and you launch from the equator, well, the worst possible scenario, now you know you have to pay an extra 500 meters per second delta V. So everyone has a tendency to launch everything in the same direction because it's much cheaper that way. But uh, if you have an equatorial orbit, so an orbit that just goes around the Earth uh, at, at the equator, like, or a circular orbit especially, the, the, the problem with that is that you'll only ever see the land underneath you that's equatorial. Because uh, since you're in an equatorial orbit, like, there's nothing else that you'd see. Now, you, you, you'd have to go out very, very far in an equatorial orbit to be exactly above the same point all the time. That's a geostationary orbit that's like 40,000 kilometers up, something like that, I can't remember. Uh, but a long way up. <laughs> so there are, some, there are some cases for putting things up that far, space elevators being you know, the operative thing that comes to mind. But for the most part, everyone puts them sort of a few hundred kilometers up, in which case you're going very fast, you orbit the Earth uh, at, you know, on the order of, it takes about on the order of uh, an hour or less like to orbit the Earth, or slightly more usually, but if you're, if you're sort of at low Earth orbit, so you get to pass over everything at the equator. But now, say you're, a, um, say you're an imaging satellite or something like this, you need to get data about all you know, you're, you're looking for. Uh, I, Pictures of pictures of things. Like say you Google Earth or something like this, or uh, you you want to, or you're a spy satellite. You you want to discover you know the locations of uh, particular assets in enemy territory. To in those cases, you would want to have a satellite that goes in an orbit that's uh, not equatorial, that's slanted to some extent, because then if you had an orbit that's so slanted. Uh, it doesn't even have to be an elliptical orbit, it can be just a circle. If it's slanted as a circle, you're going much faster than the Earth is. And so the Earth rotates underneath you. And you can imagine, if you, if you chose the right height so that the, uh, the time it takes for you to go around uh, once in your orbit is not some perfect multiple of the, uh, the amount of time it takes for the Earth to go around in its orbit, then over time, you would end up sort of, you'd end up tracing out basically a path that takes you all the way around the Earth because the the Earth would be moving underneath you so that uh, you'd never wind up back where you started over the same point on the Earth. And so, if you if you choose an orbit like this, slanted in some way, it doesn't have to be slanted at like forty five degrees or ninety degrees. Uh, it could be just slanted even a little bit. Then you'd be able to you'd be able to track over large amounts of the Earth's surface. So for satellites whose job is to track over the Earth's surface, you don't want them in equatorial orbits, typically. You want them slanted to some degree. That's the, that's the real source of the problem. You have a whole bunch of satellites that actually aren't going around in the cheapest way. They're, sort of, they're, they're slanted off at an angle because it's, it's advantageous for them to, to be slanted off at an angle. They, they have to be. Now, if you have a satellite going the right way round, sort of at an equatorial orbit, and one that's slanted off at an angle, even though they're going roughly in the same direction, when they come to impact each other, uh, the way the, you, you add up, you add up the, the velocity vectors to find uh, what it looks like from their perspective. So you, you imagine on a two satellites that are crossing paths with each other, that, that impact each other, right? but where they're going roughly the same direction around the Earth, but one of them's at an angle to the other. 
the from their perspective, you have a satellite that's moving in a straight line towards them. It, that's like that. That's that's uh, slanted almost, you know, um, at ninety degrees to the direction that uh, either of them are actually traveling in, because from their perspective, they they can't tell that they're both sort of going around the Earth. From their perspective, the Earth's traveling underneath them, so it looks in in practice as if you have a uh, a, a collision that takes place from an odd orbit that's that's like neither of the orbits actually involved. Uh, from the from the the satellite's perspective, of course, this correspond this can correspond to large large velocities. This is why I'm saying uh, uh, most of the most of the collisions that I'd be scared of are not happening at very very high speeds, but high enough that they that they're in a completely different realm of uh, of operation to everything that we're used to on Earth. So just doing things like this, you might have. Uh, so if you if you're going equatorially. Around the Earth, like in an equatorial orbit, you, you're looking at maybe you know uh, seven, seven and a half kilometers per second for a low Earth orbit type thing. It depends on exactly how high up and so on that you are. Uh, if you have a similar orbit that starts at an angle, well, now you can the uh, the velocity vectors. Well, velocity changes depending on where you are, right? But velocity also takes into account uh, the direction of your travel, but it's constantly changing because you're in a curved sort of orbit, right? But the the speed then uh the and the general direction of your travel uh you have to add these together to get the relative velocity of an impact and when you do this you discover that one or two kilometers per second is pretty average that in context is about the the best speed you can get for a good anti-tank gun for shell from an anti-tank gun right so you can get plenty fast just from this kind of thing now much much worse is if you if you actually have a satellite that's going retrograde, so going the wrong way round. If you send stuff up that does go the wrong way round, the 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 more expensive way to send stuff, that is extremely dangerous. That that's easy enough to see, right? Because it, you know you have a collision with something going the wrong way round the Earth, and there's an enormous kinetic energy associated with it when, from your perspective, because you add its velocity to yours because you're going in the opposite direction. So instead of one or two kilometers per second. Now you might get well up to fourteen or fifteen if you have two things in an equatorial orbit going in opposite directions. Fifteen kilometers per second is perfectly reasonable as an impact uh, velocity, which is hold on, yeah, uh, you would get an energy released if you if one of the satellites stopped entirely inside the other one. In that process, you'd get an energy released roughly equivalent to twenty five times its mass and TNT. So this could be quite. <laughs> Quite significant, right? Uh, the, now, thankfully, there are many of those. People don't tend to send things in retrograde orbits because they're really expensive. And you know, if you blow up someone's satellite, that's expensive too, as it should be. It's not nice to blow other people's satellites up. So there are there aren't that many things in retrograde orbits, but there are things in retrograde orbits, especially natural satellites, stuff that just sort of floats in. We have um, many thousands of tons of random stuff from space, I think, falling to Earth every year. So it's not like there is no uh, source of natural material that just ends up in, in orbit around the Earth. Most of it doesn't stay there very long because it's just sort of floated in from outside, uh, outside of Earth's, Earth's gravitational field. So when it gets to Earth, it's already going very rapidly. That means it's unlikely to find itself in a nice, stable, circular orbit. Those are usually artificial. We put stuff in there ourselves. Uh, but on the, on the past, you know, when, when it's coming in, uh, that's 
extremely dangerous from the perspective of satellites and things like that that we have up there. So that's, that's roughly how you can get such collisions uh, at, at high speeds. You could also get collisions, you know, you imagine if you have a, a satellite that's in an elliptical orbit, so it stretches out far away from the Earth. Well, elliptical orbits, you tend to go faster when you're closer to the thing about which you're orbiting because, uh, you know, it's like you've, uh, you've fallen down uh, from the other side of your, your elliptical orbit. Right, so if you're if you're when you're far away from the planet, you you've sort of you you might have uh, climbed up you know many thousands of kilometers. Uh, it's natural to to see how you'd end up slower at the the portions of your orbit when you're further away from the planet. Then you speed up massively as you get closer in. Well, in those cases, uh, it's easy also to see how an ellipse, even an ellipse that's uh, equatorial, and go you know you're going in the same direction as things that are going uh, around the Earth's equator. It's easy to see how, as, as a, a, an object in an elliptical orbit zooms back in, you might have the velocities required to get scary sorts of speeds for collisions. I mean, low speeds for collisions aren't exactly not scary either. It's just that, you know, uh, the, if it's happening at, say, you know, 30 meters per second, uh, the, the prospect of a fleck of paint uh, hitting the side of your satellite is exactly as scary as the prospect of a fleck of paint hitting you know hitting you at the speed of a cricket ball sort of on earth not particularly scary at all uh, so you could imagine surviving that of course if at 30 meters per second you're getting hit by another satellite that's a different story entirely that kind of thing actually is quite scary too uh, but you know that so that that that's why basically it's an v- excellent question and that's that's more or less how that comes to be uh the you know orbital mechanics can get quite complicated uh, but uh, unfortunately, this kind of thing is likely to remain a problem for a long time because uh, the it's, we're not we the the satellites that we send up don't all have the same job, and the types of jobs that they're doing require them to be in different sorts of orbits. And when once you have different sorts of orbits, any intersection between them is likely to cause a problem of this kind. But yeah, good question, right? So we already have. Uh, a lot in orbit. We've got a lot of satellites. We obviously, as you mentioned, have a lot of random junk in orbit as well. So do we currently have something that's similar to air traffic control, but for space? Because this seems like it should already be a problem if people aren't carefully monitoring it. Yes. So we do have something like this. I think there are several things like this. Uh, NASA's got one which tracks uh, objects in orbit. There, it's quite you, you. You start to see quite where where the problem's coming from if you, if you you look that up, uh, because you if you if you look at the map of objects currently in orbit, there's an enormous number of them, right? Hundreds of thousands, I think, something like this. Uh, but it only tracks objects about the size of a dinner plate. Uh, anything smaller than that, it's it gets very difficult to track from from the Earth's surface. Uh, it's probably not not that difficult to track from orbit because sensors in space are much. Uh, it's much easier to make good quality sensors in space or get good quality operation from sensors. It's a much more friendly environment, strangely, for uh, sensitive te- telescopic equipment and so on, which is why you know, like the Hubble Space Telescope got us pictures of like, things which are insanely distant and uh, insanely dim compared to you know, the, the brightness of like, the sun, for example. So, uh, but at the moment, with the technology we have, we can't really look at. Well, we we can't track things that are below a certain uh, below a certain size, and that size is quite large. 
if you get hit by a dinner plate sized object at three kilometers per second, you're going to know. Okay? <laughs> that, would, that would completely annihilate the International Space Station, for example. That would be, you might as well like, uh, shoot it with an artillery shell from like a battleship. Right? We're talking equivalent sorts of energy release, potentially. Uh, thankfully, it's not, that, that, that has not happened so far. Uh, and the, this is the other thing. Uh, for, for the most part, it's actually not that big a problem at the moment. You look at studies for, uh, for example, you can find these online quite easily, studies talking about the, the relative chances of a collision for, for a particular satellite. Uh, and they're, they're really quite small. Like the, the density of debris is still really quite, quite low. You know, it's, like it's, it's, it's an appreciable danger, but it's not, a, it's not like a spectacularly high danger. So you can just put satellites up. And then the, I think the general idea is you put satellites up, you watch out for known problems, known debris and so on. You make sure you're not in the way of that. And then the chances of getting hit by a small impact or something are relatively low and you just sort of soak it up because stuff fails in space all the time. And then, you know, it turns out, well, the, the dice were rolled and the, the wrong numbers came up and your, your project, unfortunately, has to come to, a, a, um, come to an end rather sooner than you expected because you got hit by like a, a, a loose uh, screw or something like this from some other satellite. But, you know, like we're, we're talking... It's, it's relatively small still. Uh, the trouble is, as we put more and more stuff into space, it's only going to grow. So uh, we, we, we've, we've, got, we've got the means to track space junk and so on. Uh, actually, there are some things we know about the state of debris that are quite interesting. So there's a debris field, uh, in a sense. Like if you, okay, so you, you draw a graph with the, uh, the, the probability of an impact associated with, uh, with, with debris uh, as a function of distance away from the Earth. And it peaks around, I think it's, I think it's something like 8,000 kilometers, something like this. Uh, not low Earth orbit, but you have to go a bit further out. It's around there that you get the, uh, the, the maximum danger from collisions. Below that, at 500 kilometers, for instance, sort of the height of the International Space Station, something like that. At that sort of height, you have, um, you have enough uh, atmosphere that is very, very tenuous, but there's still enough there. You know, the significant number of molecules are around that you can get slowed down over time and uh, deorbited in this way. So things tend to naturally deorbit around lower, lower forbit sorts of, uh, sorts of heights. Again, uh, all very approximate uh, because it depends, on, well, it depends on a multitude of things. Even the height of the atmosphere changes depending on so solar activity and things like this, right? Uh, but you know, uh, generally speaking, if you're quite close to the Earth, uh, your 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 satellites don't live for that long. So there's a much higher density of stuff there, but it doesn't last that long. It all gets deorbited naturally over time by the Earth's atmosphere. And really, really far out, it's very expensive to send stuff, and there's an enormous volume of space to cover. So the chances of getting an impact much, much further out are low as well. So there's like a peak uh, somewhere in the middle where you have uh, the highest potential danger. It's still very low danger, statistically speaking, but uh, the, we, we know then where ideally you'd want to, you, you want to avoid, where to pay most attention to. If you're, you're going through that region, be careful, right? Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, 
whilst we have got reasonable knowledge of sort of moderately sized uh, space junk things and old satellites and things like that, uh, we don't we don't know about the little stuff. And the little stuff can still be dangerous. This is the thing. How do you get rid of the little stuff? Or how do you avoid the little stuff if you can't see it? Yeah, because it might seem like a really obvious problem that if a satellite crashes into another satellite, you've lost two satellites. But really the danger is even a small thing crashing into a satellite would then scatter more debris everywhere, which is going to go off in all directions, hit other things, and just essentially snowball in that kind of way and take everything out. Yes, exactly like the movie Gravity, right? Which yes. is the, that's basically the plot. Uh, spoiler warning. <laughs> no, you, you see the trailer, right? But um, yes, that that's potentially a, a a big deal and you can't it's very hard to track the little bits so it's the little bits really that scare me the most uh nonetheless the little bits come from the big bits uh they tend especially in lower four bit the uh it's the the surface the, the ratio of the surface area of the the debris to its total mass that controls uh the effect of things like air resistance or even sunlight pressure which is not insignificant over very long periods of time well it's mostly insignificant solar sails by the way are a really tough racket okay especially this far from the sun i uh, for, for big fans of solar sails um i i'm sorry guys but like past past like mercury's orbit uh it's it's really hard to get those to work especially with modern technology being pragmatic nonetheless solar pressure if if it's just if it's a question of sort of deorbiting like a um a loose bit of string or something like that. Uh, solar pressure might be significant over several years, or like a solar proton event, maybe. The the multiple factors at play, at least, that you could expect uh, might be sufficient for very small objects to deorbit them. Uh, but you know, uh, nonetheless, whilst they're around, the really small objects are the dangerous things because you can't see them coming, and there's a lot of them, and it's likely that they an impact with one of those could still cause you significant damage. So being an engineer, you're a solutions-focused person, at least I hope you are. So can you tell me a bit about what we might actually be able to do about this? Right. Yes, I assume you've course. got some crazy ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you assume exactly right. That's, that, that's, that's indeed the case. I, I've got some thoughts. As per usual, it turns out the, uh, the, major, the major barrier to sorting out space junk, uh, I think, is a political one and not a technological one. So it's just the same as for uh, for Earth launches. If you want to if you want to launch stuff from the Earth, and you like say say you were serious about colonizing the solar system, or something like this, or um, uh, yeah, say I, I I love this scenario. Well, I don't like I don't like it in real life, but I love to think about this scenario. Okay, it sounds a little bit sci-fi, but it is not impossible. It's just very low probability. If say tomorrow. Uh, you know, like the, the James Webb telescope or something like this. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm not sure if it's fully operational yet, but say, say I don't know, uh, astronomers or like, uh, you know, a news telescope switching on, they look up in the sky and they discover that there's a black hole heading to, into the solar system. And they're like, we have 100 years to evacuate the Earth, guys. <laughs> That's the, 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 the headline. What do we do? In a scenario like that, uh, the right answer, obviously, is to use nuclear pulse propulsion. So um, to to get stuff off of the Earth, that's the best solution for Earth launch. Easily, I like how you say that's obvious, as if I was just going to suddenly say, "Oh, nuclear pulse propulsion that would help sort us <laughs> out." Dude, well, like you know, I, okay, yeah, so 
you you see a rocket launching and you're like, well, the rocket's got to accelerate upwards. And to do that, you've got to have very high temperature gas that's thrown out the back. And it's got to have a high thrust to sort of push it up. And the problem is that there's not much chemical energy stored in, you know, um, like that, that's available for combustion chemistry. Uh, so it's not quite hot enough and you don't get quite enough thrust to really lift up that much stuff. You've got to lift up the fuel, especially. So most of the mass ends up being fuel. It's not that efficient. And you're just like, well, uh, now high, high temperature gas that moves really fast and high thrust. You mean a nuclear explosion? I mean, that'll give you both, right? The answer is yes, it will give you both. Definitely. You can imagine, you know, like a, a 10 million ton spaceship. And that, that's, not, that's not even hyperbole, by the way. That's basically what was designed, like in the 70s. Uh, uh, like something, something on the order of that mass with nuclear explosions detonated underneath it to push it into orbit. Well, you've got all the thrust that you want if you're using nuclear explosions to get your, your thermal energy. That is then the best way to launch stuff up. You, the cheapest way to launch up massive amounts of stuff is this. The trouble is you can't do that in practice unless the scenario is uh, so extreme that you have to do something on, on this order because there's, there's no other option for doing what's needed. Incidentally, at some point, we've got to do a podcast on how to, how to evacuate the Earth if we're given like a, you know, a half century or something like that. This is, a, this is a brief aside just to demonstrate that there are many situations in science where the best technological way to do things is prohibited by political problems. So to, to get thousands of nuclear explosions in the, in the atmosphere, uh, it, it can be done quite cleanly, by the way, but very little fallout, but basically none. Uh, but you have to be transporting around large numbers of nuclear explosives. And then you're just like, well, what if one of them goes missing? Like, that's not that, that's a big deal. <laughs> what if someone uses it for nefarious purposes? You know, that, that's really, really quite scary. Uh, good point. And hence, unfortunately, nuclear pulse propulsion is not a thing that happens right now. We've got to do things with rocket chemistry, which is still cool. It's just not as good. Well, so with space junk, how does this relate to space junk? I think the, the obvious way, the best way to deal with space junk is with a giant laser. Giant laser on the Earth. You're just like, you, you find where the space junk thing is. We've got a map of the big parts anyway. And you're like, okay, there it is. And you blast it with uh, a concentrated beam of laser light. It ablates some of the surface off and uh, pushes it down, gets into the atmosphere and uh, burns up harmlessly. Uh, how does it push it down if we're blasting it from Earth and that's ablating some of the surface, and surely that's providing uh, some sort of pressure in the opposite direction. Mm, yes, good point. Good point. Uh, no, it, what you you the intent is to slow it down, and as it slows down, that makes it that makes it uh, its altitude drop. Oh, so is is it because we're reducing its mass, so it will slow down, so it will drop into that? Well, there's there's this as well. It's more like sort of you ablate you. So you, maybe uh, you imagine having a a, a a block of space junk, you, you try and hit the front of it. Well, if, if you're able to do this, you hit the front of it with your, your laser beam and it, it ablates off and some of, the, uh, some of the force associated with the ablation pushes in the opposite direction to the space junk's motion and you slow it down. As right. it slows down, it's, uh, its orbit decays. But otherwise, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're only able to get sort of a jet of stuff coming out of it, uh, it's unlikely you'll make it worse. <laughs> you're, you're probably just sort of push it into um well you you're likely actually no in some circumstances maybe you would 
you wouldn't aim like directly underneath it if you could but uh, it's in some circumstances perhaps you would you'd end up speeding it up but uh, with with a bit of practice you know you can sit there forever and just practice on bits of satellite uh, you can imagine being able to burn them up uh, or, or blast enough off them that they uh, they they're, they're made to slow down if you try for the front face rather than the back face might it be easier to do that from orbit with a laser that's in orbit yes but then you but... have to power it you have to bring the thing, yeah, you have to bring the, you know, making a 10,000 ton laser on the surface of the Earth is already expensive. <laughs> Putting a 10,000 ton laser into orbit, that's extremely expensive, especially, especially when the whole, the whole premise of this, this setup is that orbital debris can massively damage large satellites. <laughs> you imagine putting this laser up to, to try and stop the space debris and so on, and it gets hit by something. And ends up contributing more <laughs> space debris. What all you have to do is put a second space laser up there to protect the first one from incoming yeah, space Yeah, there, there space we junk. go, right? <laughs> it's the, it turtles all the way down, <laughs> unfortunately. unfortunately. So the, um, you might be looking at an increase in cost, at least uh, of a factor of 10. But maybe, well, uh, if you're pessimistic about how SpaceX will do, and obviously I'm optimistic about how SpaceX will do, because of course I am. But some some people quite quite rationally are pessimistic that uh, SpaceX will be able to drop launch prices massively more than it already has, like down to like a hundred dollars per kilogram to low Earth orbit, which is their aspirational goal, which is just insanely good, you know, like a hundred times better than the space shuttle, for instance, not more. If they if they can't reach this, you might be looking at sort of uh, a factor of ten to a factor of a hundred increase in cost of um, getting a laser system per unit of power given out put into uh, Earth orbit as opposed to firing it from the surface of the Earth. So from the surface of the Earth is the natural thing to do, especially for the first one. You know, like eventually, you know, in like 200 years time or something like that, you wouldn't build it on Earth. You just import it from Mars or something. And, you know, they, they give you a really nice one uh, as, as well as, you know, all sorts of awesome technology, maybe space colonies and things like that. At the moment, though, like it's the, the easiest thing to do is just put it on the surface of the Earth and then just have it zap things uh, from below. And then, you know, like you can, if it's a small bit of satellite as well, like a small bit of space debris, you can zap that too. And if you, if you get good, so if instead of putting a laser in orbit, if you put some really good imaging uh, equipment in orbit that can spot the really small pieces of debris, like the fleck of paint, that's really quite scary if it impacts you at, you know, five kilometers per second. Is not so scary uh, if you can if you can spot it and image it and then zap it with a laser because now that really is just going to completely evaporate with uh, even a moderate amount of of laser light. The trouble with this is the distinction between a satellite laser broom that clears out space junk and a high power laser weapon that can destroy enemy satellites is basically zero. They're the same thing. They're the same thing. The only dis- the only distinction is what you're aiming at. So uh, I I I'm not sure I'm not sure that it's a really good idea to get in an arms race amongst the uh, the spacefaring nations, <laughs> which is exactly what this would be if you made such things. Maybe there are political solutions to this, but um, uh, like you you imagine if, for instance, uh, yeah, I I don't know. Uh, uh, the United States and say uh, uh, China or what you know or Brazil. Or Anyone who, um, anyone else who has a space program, uh, you know, perhaps that doesn't have as close political ties, uh, 
as as other as other 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 uh, places. If they build a uh, a space broom laser, you know, that's capable of taking out satellites uh, at lower orbit and you know maybe even far above that, you know, you, you can imagine the United States being very worried about that. And well, it, naturally, it, it it operates in reverse as well. So especially, especially since you imagine like in a, in, um, you know, a, a, a potential, uh, a potential conflict or something like that, it would be commercial satellites that could completely destroy. They're the first ones you go for because you know where they all are. And, uh, if you're, if you're being like, if you're putting up military satellites and so on, uh, they, those you would make, you, you take measures to make it more difficult to, to snipe them out with a, a ground-based laser. For instance, you could imagine. If they have solar panels and, and so on, you could you could point them directly away from the Earth and have them rotate around so that you're getting like a a, a reasonable approximation of uh, uh, you know useful amounts of sunlight. Maybe there are some parts in your orbit where you don't get as much sun as you otherwise could. But by pointing them directly away from the Earth and uh, you know having a having a small aspect ratio from the perspective of uh, you know uh, the Earth, you could you can make it very difficult to sort of snipe it down. Uh, that's the other thing as well. Uh, it's it's actually easier to hit the front side of a uh, a satellite if you're firing the laser at an angle uh, rather than directly up. That's the that's the other key uh, why 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 it's easy enough to to hit the front part of a satellite rather than just yeah you know, it's, it's not it's not so hard as at first it, it appears. Um, but you can imagine in some cases like you get really hardened satellites. So just like with a with a nuclear war, uh, another depressing topic, but. I don't know. I, I, I touched on these a lot. I, <laughs> I watch too much sci-fi. This is the thing. Uh, just like with a nuclear war, it's civilian targets that get wiped out. And then the, the military targets are usually just fine. At least, you know, after like a half hour in, there's the civilian targets that are the ones that get wiped. Nah, never mind. So that's my problem with laser brooms. Uh, they are really good. I think they are probably the best solution overall. And a, a scalable one because anything you can do on Earth is great for the near term because there is no infrastructure in space. Apart from like communication satellites and you know the I don't know, ten kilograms a year of metal that you can sort of put together on the ISS for a few experiments, maybe that counts. But otherwise, there is no infrastructure in space. Whereas on Earth, you know, we casually make like a billion tons of steel a year, like mostly mostly in China. But you know, as a casual thing, we could easily scale that up if we wanted to. So uh, yeah, we. Infrastructure is way cheaper on Earth than it is in space. Hence, you know, you, you put one of these things up, that would be great. Unfortunately, uh, there's that problem that there is no distinction between a, a satellite broom and a, uh, and, and, and a, <laughs> a, a competent anti-satellite weapon. Uh, so I, my, um, my instinct then has been to look for solutions which are much more difficult to weaponize. Still weaponizable, anything that you can use to take down uh, space junk could be used to take out satellites in principle, but ones that are much less, uh, much less viable in that capacity. I, so I, I've, had, I've had a few thoughts about this. As per usual, uh, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe, maybe it's not that extreme, but uh, I, I, tend to, I tend to gravitate towards industrial chemistry, so naturally, my my proposed solution, the one I want to talk about here, the, the the key I think that might might be enough to to sort this stuff out, is a uh, a, a plastics innovation. It's a particular choice of uh, of plastic that I think is the the right way to deal with the space junk issue. You see, uh, so 
particular choice of plastic has that? Well, think of things in the following way. So uh, thinking of plastic on the earth, you know, with, with plastic, like, uh, plastic pollution and so on, it all ends up in the oceans and then it kills all the fish or it ends up in our food. That's not, not good, right? Uh, you, you, you want to deal with plastic junk. So instead of space junk on the earth, we have a, a plastic junk problem. Uh, you have loads of proposals for dealing with it. Mostly they, they go along the lines of how do we collect it all up and then do something to it so that it's not a problem anymore, which is the same with space junk. How do we get to each of the pieces of space junk and then take them out of orbit or put them into another orbit where they're not a, a danger? Take them, take them out of places where they're, they're problematic. Well, uh, in the case of plastic junk on Earth, uh, I... In many senses, the better solution is just to switch out of plastic that's not biodegradable and switch to plastic that is biodegradable, so it just goes away again. In the case of satellites, it's very difficult to make a satellite that will naturally disintegrate, and probably it's a bad idea to make a satellite that will naturally disintegrate. They do naturally disintegrate, but through unfortunate means like you know, um, solar flares and so on, frying the electronics, or the, well, certainly destroying the solar cells. Over time, they just stop working in space, unfortunately. Uh, there are plenty of satellites that are still there, sort of zombie satellites that have sort of degraded naturally. Uh, and then occasionally, sometimes they turn back on. You're like, wow, excellent. We get you know, more free satellite time. We thought you were dead. Goodness, you're still going. That's, that's great. You know, if the, the batteries get to trickle charge or something, I don't know, something like this. I'm not sure people really understand how satellites just stop working and then occasionally start working again. But we already have degradation of satellites. So making them degrade in a way that uh, stops them being dangerous is uh, probably a bad idea because now you're lowering the lifespan. But if it's not the satellites themselves, but something you send up, there maybe a biodegradable plastic is a great solution to the problem. So you imagine, imagine you have a giant plastic sheet and you set it spinning so that it, uh, it flattens itself out. It's like a kilometer wide, let's say. Imagine a giant plastic sheet that's a kilometer wide and going in a retrograde orbit around, uh, around the Earth. And you make sure that all your active satellites, anything that you want to keep is not in its way. But anything that you don't want to keep uh, naturally will, might, might stand a chance of passing through its orbit. Well, if you have that go around the wrong way around uh, uh, Earth orbit, anything that hits it is exposed to an enormous amount of, uh, of heat. And, uh, you know, either in the case of like a fleck of paint or something like that, it's completely vaporized. Or if it's a, a larger piece of satellite debris, so as long as it's not too large, otherwise you might make, make, make the problem worse by splitting it into loads of little bits. Uh, but if it's, if it's a very thin sheet of plastic, especially, so that it's, it's not like, you know, like a, a bomb going off when the, uh, can we say that? <laughs> when the satellite hits it, right? Uh, but instead, a just sort of uh, an, an, an intense sort of flash of gas uh, from from the you know the, the plastic evaporating. Uh, if it's you know if it's moderately sized pieces of space debris, they're either completely evaporated or they're pushed out of orbit and then probably interact with the Earth's atmosphere in such a way that they deorbit themselves. Now, if you if you just do this with like it, so this be like a satellite broom that that might work to cut down a lot of space debris. Anything that interacts with it is likely going to be pushed out of orbit. If you do this with like a, um, a normal, uh, a, like a good space plastic, like Captain, for instance, 
the captain will take it. The captain will just sort of sit there. And then as it gets hit by things, occasionally something's going to like break a piece off of it because, you know, this is just how things, how, how things are in space, right? Blatantly, something's going to go wrong and bits of it are going to break off. Or there's going to be like an accident when one launch where you do this and it won't deploy properly and it won't be doing its job. And now it's part of the space junk. Anything you add up like this to space is probably going to become part of the space junk problem, right? So have I made things worse with such a design? I, well, it depends what the plastic's made of, you see. So I, my, my proposed innovation, the thing I've been thinking about, is uh, the use of some types of plastic which are not very good in space. I think those are the ones that you want for this kind of role. So for instance, polyoxymethylene, uh, which is basically formaldehyde, so that's carbon with two hydrogens and a double bonded oxygen stuck to it. That's a very stable molecule, by the way. Uh, you, you polymerize that, and you get polyoxymethylene. Polyoxymethylene is really quite uh, fragile. Uh, like, you know, you even like it, it can be degraded by radiation or certainly by heat and so on. Uh, if, you, if you have materials made from it, like, uh, you know, components made from it, uh, they, they tend to have really nice properties, actually. Uh, polyoxymethylene is quite a nice plastic, except that they, they start smelling of formaldehyde because the natural tendency is for it to break down unless you do special things to it to stabilize it. But even then, like it's not really stable. It's just sort of more stable than its natural state, which is great. You can tune it. Well, in space, that's actually quite useful if you want something that will go away on its own, or off its own accord. If you put polyoxymethylene sheet in space, it's exposed to a lot of sunlight and ultraviolet, uh, and it's a, there's a vacuum, so there's, there's the, the vapor pressure is very, very low around it. So its natural tendency is to disintegrate and disintegrate into formaldehyde, which is very stable. So it's a, it's a very small molecule. So left to its own devices, I, you'd have to actually try this out to see. I don't think anyone's really done this yet. Uh, but my suspicion is that you end up with, over time, it just disintegrating into a gas, in which case there's no, no danger to spaceflight at all. You can imagine, like, I'd, I'd like to have just basically a, a, little, a little jar with all the air taken out of it and a black light UV, uh, UV light stuck on the end of it with some polyoxymethylene inside. And then, you know, leave that running for a year. What happens? I, that's a very cheap experiment to do. And it would tell us if it turns out that I'm correct and you can, you, know, you can just, you can rely on it to just disappear. You could send something like this up. And have it collect up uh, space junk or, or deorbit space junk, and then over the course of well, you, the, you can do things like you can add in, um, you can you, you can do things to, like copolymers and so on to stabilize it, so it takes longer to disintegrate. You could you could imagine tweaking it so it lasts for however long you want it to last for. You can imagine like a, a six month run or something like that, where you, you put it through a a, a debris rich region of uh, 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 of space junk, have it fly through and smash into things. And then you program it basically by tuning how much you know um, uh, how much protective stuff you put in copolymers and so on. You tune it so that after six months it's just gone. But then for a good few months of that, it's really doing its job and it's blasting through all the space debris, and it just uh, ceases to be after a while. Then you don't need to you don't even need to launch up that much because you can have even a very thin sheet of plastic would be able to do enormous amounts of uh, 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 delta V. You know, like you'd be able you'd be able to really whack some uh, space debris 
with, with even a very thin sheet of plastic if the collisions are happening at very high speeds. I, so I, I think something like that might be, uh, might, might be operable in practice. I, I don't know. Obviously, it has weaknesses and so on. Uh, it does mean that there are some lanes of, uh, uh, of orbits that you just you don't want to go into because you're going to get whacked by this thing. So you need your satellites to be able to dodge out the way, or you need to pick areas where there aren't many satellites. The thing is, the areas where there aren't many satellites are also the areas where there isn't that much debris, or where the debris doesn't do anything, so no one cares. So, you know, it has its strengths and its weaknesses. You also got the, um, the you-only-live-twice approach. Uh, you know, the, the James Bond movie with the giant, uh, the, the satellite with the, it, it's got like this sort of uh, uh, mouth that opens up and it grabs other satellites. That's really cool. Uh, the, the issue with that is it's, it's, it's quite a heavy thing that you have to send up. You imagine sending up a, a little satellite or uh, I think there's, a, there's an anime about this once, by the way. Uh, side note, it's quite, it was quite good. I forgot, oh, I forgot what it's called. Planetes, there we go. That, I should, <laughs> for anyone who's remotely interested in this kind of thing, I recommend checking that out. That's not bad. It's a space junk anime. Uh, you, 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 could, you could imagine like a little satellite thing that goes up and then it uh, maybe... There's, I've seen a proposal recently for one which has a, like a harpoon attached to it, and it can um, you know, launch the harpoon out and grab onto a, uh, a piece of space debris. Uh, here would have to be a big piece of space debris, right? And that's, that's the problem. You pull it in and uh, you know, close the, the jaw, whatever, and now you've, you've captured that piece of space debris, and you can have it sort of take out debris one part after another. Uh, that's workable, for sure. Uh, but... You need you need quite a lot of mass for that uh, that satellite. Your 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 space debris clearing satellite has to be quite a big thing. Uh, you have it's it's going to be quite expensive, and of course, uh, you have to like you you'd want your your harpoon to be reusable, or you'd want it to have a lot of fuel in so it can move around and then inter intersect with uh, orbits of debris that it's going to collect up. And, you know, all of this makes it quite an expensive solution. But for a big problem, like a, a big satellite that you need to get out of orbit, I know something the size of a space station Mir or something like that is, uh, you know, get, like that it's, it stops working and you're like, well, we've got to get this out. And we aren't able to deorbit it, you know, naturally with um, Earth's atmosphere because it's too high up. What do we do? In this scenario, maybe that kind of thing makes sense. But other than that, like um, uh, it's going, it's really tricky to get that to work with small bits of space debris. So if you want to clear out ten million bits of space debris with such a thing, you realize that you have to change the orbit of your uh, of your system every time you want to get more space debris. So that's a lot of fuel that you got to bring up for it. I so I, I I'm skeptical that that works for the vast majority of the space debris out there. And of course, it's completely useless for um, you know like uh, flecks of paint or I'm using that as like a you know a catch-all for uh, the random bits of space debris that are likely floating around. Bits of broken uh, solar panels, I expect, are a large portion of this because, well, like you look at the ISS, for instance, International Space Station, you see some some parts of solar panels have been uh, hit by space debris, and there's like a bump in them, and uh, you know, like you you see the you see the potential danger. Right, it's fully a very very small. Uh, uh, colliding objects, and it's caused this massive hole in the the, uh, the the solar panel, and bits of it have flown off, likely. And now they're going to do the same thing. Uh, well, for them, yeah, the, the, this approach doesn't really work. So, I I, I still think like a a, uh, a degradable plastic sheet 
might work. I've also heard of aerogel working, like a big, uh, big sheet of aerogel picking this stuff up. The sheet idea seems good because obviously you could send it up folded and then just spin it to, to bring it out into shape. Once it's absorbed a lot of impacts, do you think it would be possible to reverse that spin and bring it back in so that it doesn't, so that it's smaller and doesn't just continue floating around, potentially causing problems? Uh, yeah, having it, having it, having it go back in, uh, in principle, yes, but now this is the, this is the trouble. So in order to do that, you can't use centrifugal force to make it go back in again. Centrifugal force only tries to pull things out. It's very difficult to get a, um, uh, well, a, centri a centripetal force to pull it back in. Please tell me I got those the right way around. <laughs> you know, like a restoring force to <laughs> collapse it back in. Uh, you need like, a, like an elastic or something like that. So if you, you know, you imagine a string or well, it's gonna be a spring or you know some like a, the equivalent of like elastic or something like that built into the structure, then if you if you had it spinning, it would counteract the pull of the spring, and you stop it spinning and it collapses back in again. Well, if it's going to be operating for many months or years, you're 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 implicitly relying on a uh, a very very lightweight has to be lightweight, otherwise there's no sense in this. Uh, a very, very lightweight elastic element to remain elastic the whole time and not get used to its extended state for the entire time. <laughs> or you have, you know, strings attached, but then they have to be pulled in by like a motor or something like that. Well, like the, the more complicated you make it, the more, um, the more machinery has to be put in, uh, the, the more it costs and the more there is to go wrong. I'm assuming here that inevitably something's going to happen to it. And it's a large thing so that it has the potential to contribute to a lot of space junk when inevitably it hits something and bits rip off or something like this, right? Like, uh, in principle, you could just pack it away again, but there's bound to be parts of it that end up sprayed everywhere uh, because that's just life, <laughs> right? So my, um, th this is why I'm thinking a, a plastic that degrades on its own, a satellite that just will disintegrate if left to its own uh, devices might be really useful because... Even in the case that something goes wrong, as it inevitably will, uh, the worst that happens is that for a few, you know, like maybe maybe on the order of a few months, depending on how you programmed it, uh, you know, by when you made the polymer, uh, you you have bits of debris that might cause a problem. But then after that, they've all just evaporated into the ether, and there's nothing there. That that that's why I, I prefer that because otherwise, you know, you imagine you have a system that's able to uh, to collapse in on itself. Uh, but then a piece of space junk hits one of the one of the cables, so it can't pull itself in properly. Or maybe you get a, a a piece of space debris that interacts with it in a weird way, and it causes a tear, and then a part of it flies off. You're like, well, I, you could you could see how quickly how you'd make the problem worse. I I don't I don't know. Maybe it does make sense. Maybe it's a doable thing. Uh, I, honestly, for the, for this kind of thing, like. Uh, Theoretical studies, I think, only get you so far. This seems like the sort of thing where you just sort of have to try it to know. And like, there are a lot of parts of science that are, that are like this, and certainly parts of engineering that are like this. I, I'm, I'm originally a physicist by trade, so this, this kind of thing disturbs me to a large extent, but it's just how life is. Like, uh, you, there are a lot of things which work, and it's not very clear how they work. Catalysts come to mind. No one's exactly sure. Well, for some reactions, it's clearer than others. No one's exactly sure how catalysts work in all instances. 
uh, a lot of the times we, we don't know. It's just, I, I don't know, for, for some reason, if you put hot carbon monoxide and hydrogen over a ruthenium catalyst or like a nickel catalyst, you get methane at the end. The exact way that that happens, I'm not sure anyone knows. It just sort of does. <laughs> so uh, the, there's all sorts of parts of, um, or certainly in computational modeling for, uh, for fluid dynamics, there's so many things which just sort of are built from experiment, but it, turbulence is so complicated, we can't, can't really predict exactly how, like wall behaviors and so on, we can't predict exactly how they behave in all, how, how they work in all circumstances. We just got a lot of good data for a few circumstances and we apply it to everything else. I think to a large degree, this is the kind of thing you just have to try it out to see. And then some approaches work and some don't. The trouble is, obviously, I don't want to be the guy like the, um, yeah, you know, the, the guy who made, uh, who, who added lead to gasoline? You know, like, I, yes. YouTube. And didn't he do something else as well equally? Isn't he the same guy who invented CFCs? Yes. He's the same guy, right? Yeah. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I put the plastic in all of it, just like, well, I've got this great new idea of how we can clear up space junk. And then as a result, I'm the one who makes space travel impossible for the next hundred years. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> so try, you know, you try it on a small scale, you try it carefully and all this sort of thing to make sure it doesn't, um, uh, doesn't make things worse. Uh, but yeah, like there are a lot of things proposed for how to do this. And um, my feeling is that oftentimes like you, you, you from, from experience, you just be able to pick them up, pick up which ones work and which ones don't. From a, uh, from a Martian perspective, of course, this is especially scary because uh, coming in from, say, say you have a spacecraft returning from Mars, uh, the velocities that you end up having are really very high on that first pass through. So if you get hit by space junk or something like that, just before you get to Earth's atmosphere, it, you, know, like you imagine this happening to a starship. If it breaches the, the hole slightly or you know, it causes a very small bit of damage to like a... Um, uh, say like a ceramic uh, heat shield or something like this, that may be sufficient to uh, completely compromise its ability to deal with high heat, and you then can't survive re-entry. But you have, or the, not re-entry, uh, the the burn, like the the aerodynamic burn necessary to actually get you um, uh, get you captured into Earth orbit. You can do multiple multiple passes if you have to. In this case, I would elect to do multiple passes rather than all at once and. Uh, that maybe have it fail, right? But there, there's no, there's no option. Like there's, there's multiple passes. There's one pass, or well, that's it. There's no option three, because you can't just if you're in that situation, you can't decide not to interact with the Earth this time and go back, uh, you know, the way that you came, because the uh, like the, there's, there's no the, the next time you get to pass the Earth might be in many years. Right, you'll fly right back out into interplanetary space. So you could choose an orbit, perhaps, that interacts with Mars again. It goes back to where Mars is. But that's going to take a very long time. Uh, you, you know, I think that's probably, you're looking at maybe, maybe four years or something like that before, like if you, if you tried to make an orbit that intersected with Mars again. Uh, oh, well, actually, maybe, maybe it's different. Uh, it depends how you do it. Uh, but if you want an orbit that takes you back to Mars if you miss the Earth, uh, that's quite a tricky thing to organize. And you know, it means that you have years out potentially in space. Uh, so it's a big deal. Like if, you, if your capacity to survive error capture is compromised, you might be in serious trouble. So I, yeah, I, I worry about these things. 
especially also uh, from a Martian perspective, if Mars gets a space junk problem, that's a big deal as well because the atmosphere is very tenuous and there's not that much sunlight pressure as well out that far. And there's not much sunlight pressure here either. Uh, but you know, over many years, maybe it's sufficient. Out by Mars, it's much. There's much less. So uh, you know, it's two two and a half times less than already quite a small uh, a small force. So and you know, radiation and so on, much less uh, from the sun at least. Um, well, ignoring the effect of Earth's magnetic field, but you, you know, I you know, I'm getting uh, getting to with this. I hope. Uh, in the case of Mars, if you have debris stuck in a Martian orbit, it's going to be a long time before it falls out because the action of Mars's atmosphere is really quite low. It's, it's very tenuous. The velocities involved are lower though, to be fair. So if you get a collision in Martian orbit, it's much less, uh, much less dangerous in some senses than a collision in Earth orbit. Like in, in, a, uh, in a naive sense, you're just like, well, what's the kinetic energy involved? If I get hit by you know, like a, um, uh, a bottle of water in uh, <laughs> like a one, I don't know, a 500 gram volt of water or something in, in Earth orbit or in Mars orbit. Definitely you choose Martian orbit. <laughs> in, in Earth's orbit, that's, that's way more than a grenade. That's like a, um, that's a breaching charge or something like that equivalent. <laughs> that, oh dear. Uh, whereas in Martian orbit, it's, it's not going to be that bad. So the average uh, low, low Martian orbit velocity is probably something on the order of three kilometers per second. Whereas here, it's like seven and a half, as, uh, as I said earlier. So uh, decreasing the speed by a factor of 2.5 uh, does not decrease the the impact energy by a factor of 2.5. It's more like a factor of six, something like that. Close to factor, yeah. So it can be really quite dramatic. You 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 tone down the speed a little bit, and it's much less dangerous when you get in a, a collision. So you know, in that sense, Mars is a, a, a safer bet. Like collisions there are not likely to be so bad. Uh, but if you get space junk up there, you have to do something about it yourself to a large extent because Mars' atmosphere is too tenuous. So it worries me too. Uh, but then, you know, Mars' atmosphere being tenuous does mean that it's even easier to build a giant laser on Mars' surface and blast these things out one by one. You really could do that quite easily. Your space plastic sheet, assuming it's... Um... UV light or other radiation that makes it break down. It would break down more slowly around Mars than around Earth, wouldn't it? So it would yes. take longer. Uh, it naturally, well, it's also, it's also just heat. As it, as it warms up, it will naturally tend to break down. Uh, it does this even in Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you could, I presume, see, because it's tunable, you can, so for instance, for ultraviolet damage, the way you protect plastics with this is usually with a, um, a, little, a little addition uh, like a, a little chemical that you add in uh, when you're when you're making the plastic, which soaks up free radicals that are produced by ultraviolet. It's not the ultraviolet itself that does the damage, but uh, you know it'll interact with a bit of uh, like one of, the, one of the molecules in the well, while while the atoms in the plastic, it'll interact with it and make something that shouldn't be. So like an oxygen free radical or something like that, they which just does it's not supposed to exist in nature. That will run around and start. Uh, it'll, it'll just destroy. Uh, other other plastic molecules it comes into contact with, where you can stop damage from that by having a uh, uh, by incorporating molecules into the structure which are really hungry for these free radicals and will just eat it up before it gets to break anything. So if around Mars, what you could do is just not include any of that, you know, and then now it will break down much more rapidly just with the ultraviolet that gets there from the sun. Uh, so hopefully, 
you know, again, the kind of thing you have to try out. So this is like, the, you know, you, you have maybe a thousand little jars with a bit of plastic in and a black light on, <laughs> you know, or like a light bulb, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, not, not quite a light bulb because like a, 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 um, a light bulb that uses uh, uh, electrical resistance to generate light, that is not, not an LED. Uh, but something more like how the sun does it. So you get a full spectrum of stuff because you can't get those quite hot enough to really replicate what the sun is doing. But you could imagine, you know, something relatively cheap. You sort of set up a thousand of these things, you know, like the scene in Alien where you got the, the eggs, maybe like my lab, but they'd be like a thousand little jars and, um, you know, just sort of slowly humming away, just left to their own devices for like two years. And then my little army of um, uh, PhD students, <laughs> this is how it works, by the way, <laughs> it has the job of just going over to each one and taking notes of, like, oh, well, this one didn't break today. <laughs> this one didn't break today uh, for, for however many thousands I have or whatever. Bro. Uh, you, you can imagine setting something like this up and uh, really tuning this quite well. And the costs associated aren't that high. Uh, it's certainly something, once you have the, the knowledge, then it's there for all time. So you, I, could, I could imagine tuning it for different planets would be possible. So you, and, and you know, conversely, if you have the same issue for Venus, uh, which is a really interesting place to colonize. I know I, uh, I, I, I was very harsh on Venus as a colony location in one of the previous episodes that we had. Uh, but I reckon in the next 200 years, uh, with advances in technology, if you know what you're doing and you have the ability to do better than what we can today, Venus is actually a very nice place to colonize. It's just, it's, it's much, much harder than, say, Mars. Uh, but if you know what you're doing, it's a very good place. Well, then we might have the same problem there. And it's tunable in the opposite direction then. You could, you could choose even better kinds of plastic and they'll just break down off their own accord. Even ones that you would hope would survive generally don't. They're actually quite weak against ultraviolet and uh, other environmental factors. Plastics on Earth's surface, for instance, break down all the time, uh, just left outdoors. It's a bad idea to leave plastics outdoors. Unless you like, you have to do pretty extreme things to them, like um, completely cover them with a very thin layer of aluminium, for instance, like a crisp packet. That's quite durable, but otherwise, yeah, it'll it'll work. I mean, you know, you could do it. You could chew it a little bit. Do you think that when we start to talk about other planets or the moon or other moons, do you think if we take more of an approach of just preventing space junk in the first place, do you think that's actually plausible? Because obviously, if you plan for it. It's not that difficult to deorbit a satellite. You could just have it use its last percent of fuel to slow itself down, and then that's the end of that. Do you think that's plausible, or at some point, is this just inevitable that it will become a problem anywhere that we put anything into orbit? You can make it a lot better by, by planning things out and uh, being deliberate about how you deal with these sorts of things. Obviously, you can make it better. Uh, I've, I was sort of assuming that implicitly that uh, you, you, would, you would be careful about which parts of your rocket you allow to fly off like when you launch it and so on. That's become a lot more fashionable in recent years. I don't think uh, people are as blasé about this as they were, for instance, in the Apollo program. They just, you know, who cares? Just throw it out, it's fine. <laughs> uh, to an extent, it is fine if you just throw it out because even now the, uh, the probability of impact is very low, as I said. But uh, I think... In in the future, well, you you can't you can't really help it. Things just go wrong. But again, looking at the the, it's interesting to look up the the number of satellites which are operating as zombies. That is, they've just stopped working, but they're not supposed to have stopped working. Something went wrong, and no one's exactly sure what. In many cases, 
and then occasionally they just sort of come back to life or space probes as well like on i think on mars they had an issue like this for a while and they're like oh it came back right they, this happens a lot uh so it just sort of things just break for no apparent reason sometimes in space <laughs> or not even break sometimes they just stop working for a while and then they come back to life uh i i being an engineer i'm very pessimistic so i go along the lines of, at least with my own designs right uh this is healthy attitude to have elon says uh in your in your mind you should be thinking i'm wrong and the objective is to be less wrong rather than ever right about anything which is cool well in the case of space junk and so on uh i don't believe that it's going to be possible to <laughs> to have uh you know a to have a, a a timeline where you're completely free of accidents that just randomly put large amounts of stuff everywhere and in, in orbits it's just bound to happen uh, but you can certainly make it a lot better by not deliberately adding to it. I, although, you know, uh, if my plans come to fruition or something like them, you know, and we have, uh, well, if I head my way, uh, <laughs> you know, Mars might have billions of tons of, uh, of high quality technology orbiting it. Uh, if I head my way, maybe by the end of the century, that sounds absurd, but I got a few ideas, you know, maybe how we could do that. But certainly in like two or three centuries time, you can imagine that kind of thing being possible. In those circumstances, it doesn't take that much in the way of uh, accidents and space junk production to get some real problems. Although you know, the, the technology to clear it out is much more accessible to you. Is that the, as a, um, so I said with laser brooms, the trouble is that they can work pretty well as anti-satellite weapons. There, there, are, there are ways you could maybe get around that. For instance, like a microwave system, you put like you can imagine a microwave beam thing you put in orbit that fries things, but they can only do it at relatively short ranges. You, know, you can imagine hardening a satellite at long ranges against microwave attack of that kind. Uh, they're not at short ranges. You know, if it's a short enough range that it's like a microwave oven and it just sort of catches fire, uh, it's hard to armor against that. But if it's just like electromagnetic uh, interference and so on, you're trying to jam a satellite or, something, or like um, an EMP type thing. Uh, you can harden satellites against that, basically turn it into a Faraday cage. Uh, you can imagine military satellites being completely immune to that kind of thing. And so people, you know, it wouldn't work as a good satellite, uh, anti-satellite weapon, because you could only use it against potentially civilian targets. And so people might, you know, it might not be so, uh, so politically infeasible. And you're just like, well, this is a satellite broom. And I mean, technically I could use it to harm civilian satellites, but then I can't harm your military satellites. And if I did that, you'd you'd blow it out the sky. So, you know, like, uh, it's, it's, it's a piece of civilian equipment and it's no practical threat to you. It'd be a, a really stupid idea for me to use it as anything other than a way to make space clean. I, I could see people being, uh, you know, a lot more uh, welcoming for that kind of thing. But then it's, it's quite short range and it's very expensive to set that kind of thing up. because You need an enormous uh, emitter dish to actually use something like this. And of course, they can get hit by space junk too, <laughs> which is really annoying. You're like, damn, never mind. Uh, yeah, so so much to say that I, I, I reckon this is going to be an issue for a while. It's the technology that will catch up and make it uh, obsolete rather than the tendency for bits of stuff to just show up. Incidentally, they, also, they show up from the asteroid belt anyway. Uh, I think it's on the order of 10,000 tons a year of random stuff uh, comes through Earth's atmosphere from wherever. 
from interplanetary space. And gets captured in orbit. Yes. Uh, or uh, it gets, gets to our surface, I think, yeah. Mostly like little shooting stars and all that kind of thing, you know. Uh, rather than, not, not like the Chicks Club crater asteroid type thing, that's a lot rarer, but like an enormous amount of, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it, you know, it's an estimate anyway because it's hard to track all these things. But there's an enormous amount of stuff that comes through, uh, get, like enters Earth orbit and typically doesn't stay there for very long does enter Earth orbit at least and you know in many cases just goes straight through Earth's atmosphere or into Earth's atmosphere and just burns up uh, on a yearly basis. That's always going to be happening uh, well in the foreseeable future unless you're able to stop that but the, if you're able to stop that you're quite an advanced civilization. You're way beyond um, what I'm used to thinking about. So there's always going to be that stuff there. Okay well I'm going to wrap us up here with a, with a final question. Do you know how far out we are from this actually becoming a serious problem? And does it look like the research that we're doing into the solutions are at a pace that we can actually be ready when it is a serious problem? Some parts of that I'm not, I, I'm not well versed enough with the literature to be able to answer. So for instance, the, 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 current, state of, uh, the current state of affairs as far as uh, being able to take out satellite, well, uh, excuse me, not take out satellite, that's the four of them, to take out uh, uh, space debris and so on, or deorbit space debris. I don't actually know whether there's a big giant laser being built. I know, I, I, I've read studies about the feasibility of big giant lasers being built, and they are. You know, it's, pretty, it's a pretty doable thing. Uh, but I don't know if they're actually making them yet. I, I, I know that they're able to track all the, uh, the, the space debris past a certain size, which is about the size of a dinner plate, last I, last I know, last I checked. Maybe it's maybe it's slightly more now, uh, and I do know, however, uh, not not exactly what's being done to uh, to to try and take stuff out. I know I, I know about some of the things that are proposed. I do know uh, roughly how uh, you know how how big of a deal it is at the moment, and what what it would take to make it too like a really big deal. So, on average, if you have uh, your major distribution of uh, of satellites and debris and so on. Uh, was to stay about the same. It was all going to be put into the same sorts of volumes of space, which is reasonable since the the whole point, the the reason that you've got satellite debris and so on in the places that you have it, or rather in the orbits that you have it in, is because uh, those are the sorts of orbits that are most useful for satellites. If you were going to double your space infrastructure and the space infrastructure was to be distributed in exactly the same way as it is today, you would double roughly the chances of uh, of collisions with with uh, debris and so on. So how how far until you get to the point where it's uh, it's actually a, a serious problem and you're like, well, I just, I can't send a satellite up because you know in six months it's just going to get blown up. Uh, well, depends on the size of the satellite and so on. But I think it's uh, let's see, I you know I even. Even if you had like a, a factor of 10 increase in the amount of space debris that's actually out there, it wouldn't be so bad that space missions would be impractical. Though you may, you may, need, to do, you may need to be more careful about where you, where you send stuff. But there's really a big volume of space above the Earth. And the, uh, the space junk, whilst it's concentrated in a few orbits, you know, there are some volumes where you're really quite likely to get hit by something if you just fly up there. And some volumes where there's nothing around. Uh, nonetheless, you could think of ways in which you could get around the issue without having to care too much for the next sort of order of magnitude. 
beyond that, it's a serious issue in the sense that you you've really got to solve it. Otherwise, you know, you're starting to wonder whether or not it makes sense to put satellites up. Of course, the thing is, there's hardly anything up in orbit that we've really put there. I think it's on the order of 10,000 tons is the total amount of stuff that's ever been launched into space. And with, uh, with Starship, with SpaceX's Starship, you could do that in like uh, with 100 launches. So if, if you could get the launch cost down to about $100 per kilogram, you could put the total amount of stuff that's been on the order of the total amount of stuff that's been put into space, not quite 10,000 tons. I think it's a little bit more than that. Uh, but I won't look that up on air. <laughs> you know, uh, they, you could put that sort of amount into space for, yeah, on the order of like $10 billion, which is not like that's half of NASA's budget for a year. So it's the kind of thing that you could, you could, see, you could seriously see being done in the next few years. Like, I think we're, we're approaching a, an air, like a, um, a time of massive growth of the amount of stuff that's being put into space. At which point, well, now we might really grow to the point where it's the amount of space junk that's around is quite dangerous. So there's there's like a um, there you know there's a time frame over which you have to put stuff in place to stop the space junk, uh, and it's it's not immediately, and it's not so big an issue that you know like the the movie Gravity would have you believe where like uh, you know there's no sense going into space you won't survive you know you you have to. It's like sort of going through, um, crossing through, I don't know, um, air defenses over like a, a hostile nation or something like that. How are we going to get through all the space junk? And so, oh, you know, what's the, like the Millennium Falcon dodging through the asteroid field? It's not like that. And it's unlikely to be like that, I think, even, even with a, a century of, uh, of, of stuff being put up uh, if, if people aren't careful. Uh, but we're at the sort of stage where, you know, in, in the next few decades, uh, it's going to become more and more of an issue unless things are done to to counteract it. And you know, having looked at some of the things that could be done to counteract it, uh, asking about how how they're doing it at the moment is a good question. And you know, absent-minded me, I I, I don't I don't really know <laughs> what's actually being done right now. Uh, just what could be done, and you know, the relative strengths and weaknesses. But we we shall see over the next few years this sounds like the kind of thing which um, might have big projects associated with it in the near future i've not heard of any like really big ones you know like there's no there's no cern uh that's that's giant satellite laser as far as i know you know there's no version of cern you know like a big international project for a giant laser that shoots stuff out of orbit uh but there could well be in the next few uh next few years certainly next few decades so this has been the Nexus Aurora podcast. This week we've discussed a whole bunch of things, mostly focused around space junk and what to do about it. Next week, Chris has been asking for a while about interstellar propulsion. It seems he has a real thing for solar sails. I don't know about them myself. So we're going to have to unpack that in much greater detail, I think. Stay tuned for more esoteric listenings with the Nexus Aurora podcast. <laughs>